Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Jerry with the message. How many of you have heard the name Joshua Harris? Anybody? Everyone of my generation. Yeah. Joshua Harris is an American author who wrote a book in 1997 called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Now you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe I should have said that first. Um, and that was kind of at the height of purity culture. And if you don't know what purity culture is, purity culture, in essence, is underpinned by the idea that we as Christians need to do everything that we can, set very strict boundaries around the way we handle ourselves so that we can put our purity and our piety into the God machine and out of the God machine, we will receive, because of our purity and piety, the things that we want, the good life, everything that we ever hope for, a good marriage, a good spouse, and that things will work out. In his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, he said that Christians shouldn't date, that what they should do is just have a big group of friends and invest deeply in friendship, which I think is good, and then one day you decide which friend of the opposite sex you'd like to marry, you marry them, and then everything will be great because of that. And so a lot of people in the 90s were really influenced by this book. I personally kissed dating goodbye, like this was a thing for me. Um, and so lots of people were really influenced and in thinking, okay, if I do this, if I do this thing, if I can just keep myself as pure as possible, again, don't misunderstand me, purity is important, but if I can just keep myself as pure as possible, God will give me the things that I want. And then we fast forward to 2018, and Joshua Harris goes public and saying that he is divorcing his wife, and that in essence, he no longer finds any faith in Jesus. He disavowed his book, they stopped publishing, and he is just not anywhere close to faith with Jesus now. And I don't know Joshua Harris's story. I don't know how he got to where he is now, but I know lots of people who have a similar story, who maybe were influenced by that kind of Christianity, thinking that we can just do all the things that God wants us to do. If we have good enough behavior, then God will give us the things that we want. And a lot of those people are now struggling to figure out what's wrong there, because they're not necessarily getting the things that they want. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God's not good? And I think some people are sort of muddling through that, with their questions, and people are kind of digging into the foundations of their faith to figure out what of this is not right. And some people are picking it apart appropriately. I think it's good that we invest investigate our faith, but some people are putting Jesus on the table and saying maybe living the good life has nothing to do with Jesus. And so many people, especially of my generation, are really going through, and I think in the past few years, are going through this upheaval that a term has been coined, and it's called deconstruction, that people are deconstructing their faith. They're sort of digging at it to figure out what of it is real and what of it is not. And I'm calling today's message, the gospel is good news 
for those who are deconstructing. Let's pray. God, we welcome you here. Jesus, I am so aware today that the very breath I breathe is yours. So Lord, would you do what you plan to do today? Come in power. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to offer you this about people who are deconstructing, people who have questions. Maybe you're not upheaving, maybe there's not an upheaval of your faith, but I think we all have questions, and I want to offer you this. Jesus cares about that. Jesus cares about Joshua Harris and every single person that he influenced. Jesus cares about the people who are putting him on the table and wondering if he has anything to do with their lives now. Jesus cares about you and your questions for him and mine. Two weeks ago, Derek started a sermon series that's called Come and See. And basically, the idea is that in order to have a real relationship with Jesus, we have to experience him for ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. We fully believe that the Bible is foundational to our faith, that we need to be reading the Bible, the Word, and experiencing God in the Bible, but that if all we do is read the Bible and not experience the person of God, that there will be something lacking in the way that we live our faith. Derek talked about it. I thought this was a really good metaphor. Talked about it like a menu. If you read the menu about the food that's coming, you can know a lot about the food. But until you eat the food, you haven't fully experienced the food. You couldn't tell someone about it. And the Bible is a lot like that. It tells us so much, so much of the knowledge that we have of who God is, who Jesus is, how he works, his character, comes from the Bible. But in order to really know God, we must also experience who God is. That is how we move forward in life with Jesus. But I think even as I say that, there are probably some of us who are wondering, have I had an experience like that? And as what I would call an experience, is that what you're talking about? And I think there's one way to sort of tell if you've had an experience of God. Experience of God, if you allow it to, changes you. Not only changes you, but it changes the people around you. We, as followers of Christ, are meant to transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. It changes things. And today we're going to talk about the disciple named Thomas. How many of you have heard of Thomas? Yeah, some of you are named Thomas. <laughs> Thomas has a nickname, um, and how many, who knows what Thomas is often called? Doubting Thomas, we all know. Maybe you've called someone else a doubting Thomas. And this is because Thomas, after he witnessed Jesus being killed, refuses to believe that he's been resurrected unless he is able to touch Jesus' wounds. He says, I will not believe unless I can put my finger in the holes. Okay? So on the day of Jesus' resurrection, that first Easter Sunday, words are hard, Jesus shows himself to Mary at the tomb in the morning, and then in the evening, he goes to the disciples who are shut up in a room locked behind locked doors because they're afraid of the Jews. He shows himself to them, but Thomas isn't there. And so the disciples tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord, and Thomas says, 
unless I see it, I don't care what you say, I saw him die, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe that he's, that he's back, that he's resurrected. And Thomas is mentioned a few times in the other Gospels and Acts, but he's only mentioned in a list of people who were present at the time. They list the disciples, Thomas was one of them. But in the Gospel of John, Thomas is mentioned three specific times, and we sort of get a picture of who Thomas is. And what I really want you to see and hear is that though Thomas, like the other disciples, most of the time really didn't understand what was happening or what Jesus was doing, he kept showing up in the community of believers. And not only that, he didn't hide his confusion or doubt. He brought it forth and often asked Jesus questions that everyone else was wondering but afraid to ask. And because of that, Jesus met him with an experience of God that changed everything for him. And that is the gospel. That if we will open ourselves up to God, Jesus does the work of coming to us. That we don't have to get it right or figure it out. That God wants to meet with us. That the work of us experiencing God depends not on us, but on Jesus. That is the goodness of the gospel. We can't make that happen. We have free will to accept it or deny it, but it's him from which it comes. And so let's look at the first uh, instance of Thomas in the book of John. It's John chapter 11, verse 16. I'm going to give you some backstory. So what is happening here is that the disciples and Jesus find out that Lazarus is sick, and Lazarus is their friend. And so Jesus tells them that this sickness is not going to end in death. But he eventually tells them, he's asleep, and we're going to go back to Judea and wake him up. And the disciples kind of protest. The reason that they protest is because the last time they were in Judea, the Jews tried to stone Jesus. So they think, man, you want to go back there? They tried to kill you. But what they say is, Jesus, if he's sleeping and he's sick, that's good for him, right? He's going to get better. And so finally, Jesus is like, no, he's not. He's dead. <laughs> Let me, let me just lay it out for you. He is dead. We're going to go back and wake him up. They don't understand what's happening. But um, Thomas, in verse 16, speaks up because these, they're grumbling and they don't want to go. And Thomas says, let us go that we may die with him. And the him that he's talking about is Jesus. And so Thomas loves Jesus. And he says, you know, we're going to have to follow him. What else are we going to do? Let's all go, and then we'll just all die together. It'll be fine. And so what I love about Thomas is that they completely blow past the fact that Jesus says, he was asleep, which I mean dead, and we are going to wake him up. Jesus is in essence saying, we're going to go resurrect this guy. He's dead. We're going to bring him back to life. They're so focused on their own safety that they don't want to go. And Thomas still is also focused on that, that they're going to go and Jesus is going to die, but it's okay, we'll die with him. The loyalty of this guy, he values Jesus and what Jesus does and says more than his own life. But he still only sees Jesus as a man, a man that he loves, but still a man. 
And so he has loyalty to persist with Jesus, even though he doesn't get it. And I love that. And so we know what happens, most of us, right? The, the disciples go, they raise Lazarus from the dead. He was dead. And he comes alive again. And as I think about this, Jesus waited when he heard that Lazarus was, was sick. He didn't go right away. He waited so that the disciples could see resurrection. So that the disciples could have mental furniture for someone being dead and now alive. This is the first time that the disciples get the opportunity to see resurrection, but it's not the last. This is an example of what's going to happen. And Jesus plants this example in the disciples' minds so that later, when it happens again, they can remember, oh, I know what that is. I've seen that happen. And so Jesus does this before they even know what's happening, before they even know that he is also going to be resurrected. Again, they didn't get it. And so the second time that Thomas is mentioned in the book of John is John chapter 14. Here Jesus is talking to the disciples about his death and resurrection, and again, they really don't get it. He says he's going to the Father, and they don't understand what's happening. So this is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, and it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house had many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to where I'm going. And then in verse 5, Thomas raises his hand and is like, Jesus, uh, I don't know where you're going. How am I going to know the way? He actually says, we don't know where you're going. None of the disciples know what's happening, but Thomas is brave enough to raise his hand and say, can you like map quest it for me? Could you maybe drop a pin so that I can follow it? Because it seems like you think we know what you're talking about, but we really don't. And so I need you to help me here. You can almost hear the desperation in Thomas's question. Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. And this is really important. And I don't want to get missed or cross, left over, passed over. I need to know very clearly where you're going. Thomas is confused and he isn't afraid to say so. And he's not afraid to risk in front of his friends looking stupid and asking the question that he believes they're all thinking. And Jesus answers him so clearly in verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So in essence, Jesus gives Thomas exactly what he asks for. He asks for a map, and Jesus says, it's me. I'm the way, and from now on, you do know the way, because I just told you. You don't need to worry about that. And I wonder, would Jesus have answered that clearly if Thomas had not asked the question? If Thomas had not said in desperation, I need to know this and I don't get it, 
Will you answer me? I wonder if Jesus had laid it out. And now everybody, all the disciples get the benefit of knowing because before, clearly they didn't know. And the last time Thomas is mentioned in the book of John is John chapter 20, and we're going to sort of land here. Let's read John chapter 20, verses 19 through 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then we'll skip down to verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your hand out and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so there's a lot going on here, but I want to bring it all together and draw your attention to three things. Thomas, like all of us, has questions. And he had expectations of what Jesus was going to do and how he was going to do it. And all of that was crushed when he saw Jesus die. And it didn't matter what his friends said. His friends told him, Jesus is resurrected. We saw him. And he said, unless I experience it for myself, I will not believe. And I wonder, do we have expectations about what God will do and how? What if God does something completely opposite of what we think he should do or how he should do it. Like Jesus dying on the cross, that's not what anyone was expecting. Or maybe your friend dying, or a baby dying, or your baby dying, or COVID running rampant and with seeming no end. Or it makes me think of September 11th, 2001, when the Twin Towers were hit and the world was crazy and nobody knew what to do or where our hope would lie. And there are so many things that we can look around and say, God, what are you doing? I don't think this is the way it should be. Do we have expectations of what God should do and how he should do it? I think of purity culture. Do we expect that if we act a certain way and do everything that God wants us to do, that he should show up for us in a very specific way. And I think the question we can ask ourselves is how honest are we being with the questions that we have, and who are we trusting to have the answers? 
Because what I see people do so often, I just had a conversation with someone who has no faith in Jesus last week, and what she said to me is, I can't believe in something I don't see, and there's lots of things happening that I don't understand. And so, in her mind, there must not be a God since I don't understand him. Or, maybe we pray for someone to be healed and they don't get healed, and we make a decision about who God is based on what we see. If this person didn't get healed, either God is not good, or God just really doesn't heal people. We make a decision so that we can be comfortable with what just happened. Or we see people who are suffering in poverty, and we decide, well, either God doesn't care about them, or God is not present with them in that, because we need to have a reason. We need to have an answer to the questions that we have. And so in absence of an answer, we make our own. We trust that we can be the ones who decide what's happening instead of God necessarily. Thomas had expectations of God that Jesus did not fulfill. And maybe that's why he wasn't there the first Easter Sunday. Maybe he had to work late. We don't know why he wasn't there. Maybe he had to help with the kids. Or maybe he couldn't bring himself to be in the place where he used to be, where he had so much hope before, but he didn't have hope now. Maybe he was so brokenhearted at seeing his friend die who was supposed to save the world that he couldn't bring himself to show up around the people who seemed to have different beliefs than him. They saw Jesus, but he hadn't. And so he wasn't sure. And maybe that's why he wasn't there that first Easter Sunday. But a week later for whatever reason, Thomas is back. And he decides that the right place for his questions is in the community of faith. And that having questions about God doesn't exclude him from the community, and it doesn't make him a hypocrite. That he still has a place, even though he doesn't completely get it, even though he may have lost the hope that he used to have. And that is true of us when we have questions of God. Many times I've heard people tell me that they can't believe in Jesus or in the goodness of God because they don't understand, because there are questions that they have. And often people feel like, if I go and worship or even participate, then am I being a hypocrite since I don't fully believe? And that's just really not true. The community of faith is the only right place for our questions. God is the only one with the true answers. He's the holder of all wisdom and knowledge. And the world has plenty of answers to the questions that we ask, right? But God is the one with the true answers. And the community of faith should be a safe place for us to bring our doubts and our questions and work out those things. And so it's okay if we're confused. It's okay 
if we have doubts or we don't quite get it. The first thing that I want you to see is that Thomas, throughout the book of John, persists in bringing his honest self to Jesus and to the community of faith. And that all culminates in chapter 20, verse 25, when he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. He needs an experience of Jesus. And the next thing that I want you to see is that our experience of Jesus depends solely on Jesus, not on us. We can't make that happen. A week later, when Thomas is in the community of disciples and Jesus shows up again, he comes and it seems like he's coming just to Thomas. He comes and addresses the questions that Thomas has. It's like no one else is in the room. And it's almost like Thomas had been speaking to Jesus when he said what he needed, but Jesus wasn't there. Jesus knew what Thomas needed. And so he goes specifically to Thomas and he says, put your hand here. Put your hand here. Put your hand in my side. Touch me. I'm inviting you to touch me. Again, the very things that Thomas said he needed, Jesus provided. And I want to be very careful when I say that, and I want to notice what Thomas didn't ask for. He didn't ask for things. He didn't ask for provision. He didn't ask for safety. Again, they were hiding from the Jews because they were scared. And he didn't say, God, would you protect us? From the, if you protect us, then I'll know you're right. I'll know you're good, Jesus, that you are God. Or, God, why? Can you just tell me why the Jews are persecuting us and why they don't see it? If you'll tell me that answer, then I'll believe, Jesus, that you are God. He didn't ask for any of that. He asked for a personal, direct experience of Jesus, and Jesus answered him. Jesus always answers that request. God always gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it. Thomas didn't ask for answers. He asked for God, for experience of the presence of who God was. And when you personally know the person who has all the answers, when you experience Jesus, it matters less that you know why things happen the way they do because you know the one who does know. Experience of God helps us give up the need for knowledge and control because we can trust the person who has all the knowledge. We can trust in his love for you and his love for me. The goodness and the scandal of the gospel is that we don't have to earn it or figure it out or even have it figured out. That Jesus comes to us and we can experience him. Our interest, our entrance and participation in the kingdom depends solely on Jesus coming to us, and he always answers that prayer. We can't make ourselves experience Jesus. There's no amount of hype we can do to make God come. Like, he just doesn't work like that. Sometimes I tell my daughter, I don't answer demands, and neither does Neither does God. He doesn't answer demands. He loves to come for us. 
And so Thomas didn't ask for answers. He asked for experience, and Jesus will come. I think that God is often waiting for us to ask the right question. Not why or how, but will you come? Will you, can I touch you? Will you touch me? I think is the question that God is waiting, desiring for us to ask. So Jesus comes to Thomas. Thomas touches Jesus. And I think he gets a more full experience than the rest of the disciples got. Right? The first time, it doesn't necessarily say that the disciples touched Jesus, but Thomas did. But the interesting thing here is that even after Thomas's experience, Jesus seems to indicate that Thomas has a choice to make. Let's look at verse 27. Jesus tells Thomas, stop doubting and believe. So this is after he's touched him. Scholars seem to indicate that a better translation would be, stop being unbelieving and be believing. Jesus offers Thomas an opportunity to choose a different way of being, following experience with him. Experience with Jesus depends on him. Faith is a gift. But even after a life-changing experience, we are left with free will. God doesn't force himself on us. We can choose to be believing in the experience of God that we had, in the multiple experiences that we've had in the past, that God is who he says he is, or we can choose, even after true experience of God, to be unbelieving, to be skeptical, to question every single thing that comes if we don't understand it to believe more in our own ability to understand than in God to say who he is. And the last thing I want us to see is that we have a choice about where we will put our trust. If we allow the experience of Jesus to radically change our lives, to give up complete control to him, and choosing to trust him even when we don't understand, then we are changed. And not only we are changed, but we're empowered to change the world around us. And we see this for the first time. Thomas really gets it in verse 28. After touching Jesus and choosing to be believing, Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. And maybe that seems like not a big deal to us because we know the whole story. But this is the first time in the book of John that Jesus is called God. For the first time, Thomas really gets it. He has touched Jesus, and everything seems to come together, and he sees that Jesus is not only a man that he loves dearly, but he is also God. And because of that, because he has touched God, everything changes. He doesn't need to know the answers anymore. He knows that God has come to him, and he has touched God, and he can be believing. I think he still doesn't understand why things had to happen the way they did. But it doesn't matter quite as much because he has touched and experienced God. When we persist in bringing our whole selves again and again to Jesus, our doubts and our questions in the community of 
believers, we experience God. And if we choose to allow that to change us, to shape us into people who will be believing, it not only changes us, but the world around us. For two weeks, the disciples hid in fear of the Jews. The second time when Jesus came, they were still hiding. They had seen Jesus, but they were still in a locked room, afraid of the Jews. And then Thomas has this experience of Jesus, which benefits them all, and they don't hide anymore. It changes not only Thomas, but it changes all of the disciples. The next book is the book of Acts, where the disciples receive the Holy Spirit and do all the things that God has called them to do, that Jesus told them to do. So this experience that Thomas has, that he has asked for, not only touches him, but touches the community of believers and changes them. Not only that, but there's significant historical experience, not what I'm trying to say, evidence, not experience, evidence that Thomas went on a missionary journey to India and planted seven churches. In India, this, to this day, is 81% Hindu, and there are Christians in India who can trace their lineage back to St. Thomas. What would it look like if we, as followers of Jesus, were so changed by the experience and ongoing experience that we had of Jesus that we would do something that would have an impact for 2,000 years? What would your school look like? What would your workplace look like? What would your family look like? What would the city look like if you had an impact, if you were so changed by your ongoing experience of Jesus that you had that kind of impact, that you did what he said and knew what he was doing? How could that impact the world? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Life-changing experience of Jesus comes to people who persist. Who bring their questions and their doubts to the only place where they can find truth. To Jesus and the community of believers. But he won't force himself on you. The beauty is that Jesus is waiting to meet with us wants to meet with us and that we don't have to fake it we don't have to pretend or figure it out we just have to ask and we have to allow it to shape the kind of persons the kind of people that we believe thank you again for choosing the vineyard altoona podcast we're so excited to see how god will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.